Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. Using science to debunk myths from the pandemic to climate fraud. Thanks for listening to Sky Dragon Slaying on TNT Radio. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Sky Dragon Slaying, where we bring you the truth on science and current affairs the mainstream would rather you didn't know. I'm John O'Sullivan, CEO of Principia Scientific International. As usual, joining me is Canadian astrophysicist Joe Postma. Um, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change earlier this week uh, flew out on their private jets after completing the 28th annual two-week climate jamboree in warm, sunny Dubai. Uh, with yet another meaningless declaration that nations are going to do their very, very best to cut their carbon emissions. But COP28's president, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabur, said in the run-up to the meeting that there was no science indicating a phase-out of hydrocarbons is needed to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees. Literally no science at all. That's pretty shocking coming from the the head honcho. Um, He also said that eliminating so-called fossil fuels would put us all back into the Stone Age. Confronting group thing, you know, doesn't go down very well when you're a member of a cult. Uh, Well, here to join us to talk about the uh, great and the good gathering for their nonsensical cult meeting is uh, a scientist who um, really has his finger on the pulse. He's uh, Dr. Matthew Wailiki. He's formerly an assistant professor in the Department of of geological research sciences at the University of Alabama. Matthew qualified as a postdoctoral research scientist in uh, the Department of Earth, Planetary and Space Sciences and the Institute for Planets and Exoplanets at the University of California, Los Angeles. And um, he summed up the hype very well when he said that climate change is uh, one of the dominant issues of our time. Many governments worldwide and the scientific community seem to agree that climate change is primarily man-made. This is despite the fact that climate is a highly complex, non-linear and chaotic system, and the predictions are all based on models whose accuracy is doubtful. Criticism of the climate crisis is viewed as denial or unscientific. Now, uh, Dr. Waliki has um, made himself so unpopular, he's become an earth science professor in exile. He's actually took, took it on the chin and damaged his career for speaking out. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to the show. It's uh, very brave of you to speak out against the climate narrative like you did. Uh, thanks, John. Thanks, Joe, for having me. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's definitely one of these subjects that exists right now in academia that you just can't really question. There's no discussion. Um, this is one of these taboo subjects. You know, DEI would be another one, gender and things like that. There are just a few of these subjects. And I happen to be in an earth science department, which even makes it more of a taboo subject if you're in the community and you just have honest questions about the way that some of the science is being portrayed and especially by policymakers and and how much money is being funneled into this this whole entire industrial complex that I call it now the climate industrial complex it's definitely something you can't push back against if you want to get tenure if you want to stay in your academic position so I was already considering leaving and at that point I figured Let's just see how, you know, speaking up really does play out. And it was clear. I mean, my department was getting emails and my my the university professor president was getting emails. Um, there was a whole concerted effort to try to get me removed from my position. I mean, I was already leaving, so it didn't really make much of a difference. But it's an interesting time to mm. to discuss climate change. So yeah. what did happen to your career? Sorry, John, what did happen then? You want to tell us a story? So, 
Yeah, sure. So I started as an assistant professor at the University of Alabama after getting my PhD at UCLA. And that was 2016. I had just had kids. And so I started kind of picturing the world a little differently. Um, I started to notice a lot of the mental health aspects that were that my students were showing in college that that one of their main anxieties was actually climate. Uh, oh, students wow. were telling me that they weren't going to have children. They, you know, they come from a, a family of like eight and they have six brothers and sisters, but they're not going to have children because they're worried that the planet won't be around. And so I just really started to think about that, you know, now that I have children, that, that changed my perspective. So I started to kind of raise some questions in about 2020 during COVID. Um, and it, it became pretty clear that asking these questions wasn't going to allow me to get tenure. Um, so I, I never actually went up. We made the decision to leave prior to me going up for tenure. So, um, yeah, it, 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 you know, I guess I blew up my academic career. Mm. You have that in common, Joe Postma. You you both uh, have taken it on the chin for what you believe in. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yeah, same thing basically happened to me. Um, I mean, uh, I, I frequently tell this story, and uh, you know, some people say you know don't repeat it, but I think repetition is a is a great way to to teach people what's happening. You brought up the DEI problem, so this DEI diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, I, I like that acronym. I, I prefer to write it write it uh, DIE diversity, inclusion, equity, right? Because it's die because that's yeah. what's happening. They're killing science. So you know, the story I like to repeat is that we. So I worked on a space telescope called UVIT between the Canadian Space Agency and the Indian Space Agency and a massive success India's first space telescope and uh, it was it was wonderful that was launched in 2013 so a couple years ago we had uh, you know the next generation ready to go uh, the next generation space telescope proposal so it's in ultraviolet wavelengths uh, that's what's unique about it um, <clears throat> So of course, what do you do when the old one is is done and finished its mission? You want to build a new one with new technology, bigger, better, right? You know, that's what we always do in astronomy with space telescopes, right? So we had the best proposal. We had the top scientists in Canada, the U.S., Italy, all over. This was an international project, just like the previous one was, right? This was going to be uh, a wonderful proposal for new science in the ultraviolet. You get to study galaxies, uh, see star formation, see how many stars are being built out there in other galaxies. Uh, really, really great science. The money was ready to go. We had emails, private emails, you know, hush, hush behind the scenes from the Canadian Space Agency. Look, just submit the proposal. You'll get the money. We know you guys are good, are good for it. You know, you have a good track record. Uh, you, you, you know, you had a massive success. The University of Calgary itself rejected our proposal rejected it even though money was available like millions of dollars this is going to be 20 years worth of future development there have been any number of phds uh, generated master's students generated at, out of this program guess why they so and all of the approvals went through so guess who stopped it so we have now in the universities this dei diversity equity inclusion bureaucracy that control everything now they determine everything they're the last step Everything else can get approved, and the very last person signing off on it are these DEI bureaucracy people. They rejected it because in our proposal to do science from space on galaxies, we couldn't specify how this telescope was going to benefit the LGBT, LGBT people and help solve climate change. Mm. Matthew, did you experience that in your time in academic, academia? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the... Um... 
the funding agencies are definitely ideologically captured. And that that puts the universities at a really tough situation because mm. especially public universities, as the public funds start to dry up, they're really reliant on these federal agencies. Like Joe was mentioning, um, the, you know, there's there's millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars being moved around. And if the funding agency essentially says you have to jump through these hoops and we have this ideological statement, I mean, I think there's First Amendment speech issues here for compelled speech, but we had to write, uh, my my original work is on meteorite impacts, early earth, the origin of life. And, you know, from when I'm writing a proposal to figure out if an impact crater is 550 million years old or 500 million years old, I have to make a whole two-page uh, statement about the broader impacts, you know, to the diversity and equity and inclusion of my research. And it's just, you know, unfortunately, this is kind of the way it is. If the funding agencies are ideologically captured, there's just no other way. If you want to play the game and you want the money, you've got to jump through their hoops. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you sense there's a coordinated effort uh, with the powers that be, be it um, they may be the grant givers, maybe the politicians, to, to try and subvert actual science, to just to keep the, the dialogue on the narrative, keep it on the focus of the climate boiling narrative now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a system that is set up to kind of reward the most extravagant and most extraordinary claims. That's kind of the media aspect. And as a young academic, you see that. So, you know, if you want to get published, if you want to get into science magazine and have your research on CNN, if you make a really extravagant claim that, you know, is an outlier prediction that is even more catastrophic than the last one, that's going to get you that funding. That's going to get you that system. I mean, that's going to get you that, that, that media attention. And that's, what's going to get you tenure eventually because tenure is ultimately research and funds at, you know, publications and funds. And if your publications are making it into these large magazines and getting news coverage, and, you know, I tend to write about this on my Substack that you see this pattern of catastrophizing weather and making really extravagant predictions. Now we've had 20 years of this, and you can see that the stuff that the media really grabs onto tend to be the ones that are way out there and aren't even sometimes in the right direction. So they predict something is going to happen. Not only did they not predict it correctly, it, it didn't happen, but it went in the opposite direction many times. Yeah. And so, you know, this reliance on models and these extravagant things. So there's a system in play, but there is definitely some people in the higher echelons of publishing and of climate science that have been working with editors to keep, you know, dissenting views out, right? This is how you manufacture a consensus. So there's definitely some nefarious things going on in the backgrounds as well. Yeah, I picked up, I watched an interesting interview you did on another podcast where you talked about the fact that your father was an academic. You have a tradition in your family of going into academia and you made the point, um, you know, you, you know, you've seen it progress from the, the 80s through to the 90s. And you said that the last 10 years or so, um, it's gone very much away from the idea of open debate, the idea that, uh, it's a, you know, an intellectual free for all. No longer can you have an intellectual freedom. You're now you know, pretty much tied into a narrative and you, you dare not speak out outside of the bounds. So um, characterize that for us, if you could, please. Yeah. So this is, you know, I, so I was originally born in Poland um, behind the Iron Curtain. So late seventies and my parents immigrated when I was young and they gave up a lot to come to the U.S. and and, and raise us here in the States. And, you know, my father was a young academic there and they were arresting academics there, essentially, if you spoke out against the communist regime. 
and the, essentially the puppet governments that are being put in by Moscow, if you spoke up against these, you know, that's that was essentially a, a prison sentence. And my father could kind of see the writing on the wall. So he got us out, thankfully. And I think that maybe made my radar a little bit more sensitive to what I call the rise of a liberalism on, on campuses. This what attracted me to universities was this idea where, you know, intellectuals could battle on the site, on the, on the field of ideas and, and, and discuss and debate. And then we'd go have a beer afterwards because, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat and I may disagree with you adamantly about this or that, but at the same time, you know, we're humans. I'm a pluralist. I, I accept that you may disagree with me on certain ideas and that's okay. Um, I think ultimately a lot of us want the same things and we want a safe and, and healthy upbringing and, and, you know, a, a future for our children. So something has changed in the last I don't know, 10 years or so, and definitely since COVID, where people that disagree now can no longer go have a beer afterwards. You you can't coexist with each other. It's it's your ideas are are dangerous and your ideas are violence and and your ideas, you want the end of the world because you don't think that CO2 drives all of the climate phenomenon that we see. And it, it what used to be a healthy exchange of ideas now becomes this kind of toxic environment that if I disagree with you, I'm a heretic and I'm somehow, you know, imp hoping that that the world is worse in the future. And, and not only do we have to disagree, but I have to be stricken from any sort of record. And, and you know, you have to silence me as much as you can. It's very strange well, you, how it's changed. Well, what you're describing is a religion, aren't you? Absolutely. Unfortunately, it's a dogma, right? It's not really debate and, and it's faith and, and dogma. And that's hard to yeah, they, that's hard to argue against. I want to jump yeah, in and just uh, make a point here that um, again, um, technically we're all academics. You, the three of us are academics. My, uh, you, you guys have worked in um, university level. I've worked at the high school level. I was a high school teacher for 20 years. And I totally concur with what you're saying, Matthew, the idea of indoctrination, the gradual drip drip effect over the, over the decades. Where I've noticed that um, the idea is to make our children fearful, you know, make the children fear some impending catastrophe. And fear is an amazing motivator, isn't it? The idea that if you scare enough people, they will clamor for action now. And again, it's the uh, Hegelian dialectic, you know, <laughs> you know, where they yeah. try and uh, whip it up. It's really, it's, it, it's kind of, that's, that's the part that really drives me crazy because you can see they've been working with social scientists, especially the IPCC and the way that they report, particularly their summaries for executives. It's very disconnected from what the science says. And they've been ratcheting it up the, the way that they use the words to elicit fear because fear is a really good way to change behavior. And ultimately, this is about changing behavior. This is about driving certain policy and you know, government control and money. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Post, Joe Postman, you, you probably agree that um, the way it's worked out over the past 13 years, well, well, you and I've been working at Principia Scientific is that uh, anybody who goes against the narrative, we're, we're kind of deplatformed. We're called uh, unscientific. And, and yet the irony is all of us are highly qualified in the sciences. Um, and the representatives for the dogma, uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, she came on the stage as a 16-year-old spouting nonsense, reading from a script. So, again, it kind of flip-flops the reality, doesn't it, guys? It's really strange. Yeah, they get these total quacks who will they will put up as representatives and they'll say the most ridiculous things. Meanwhile, people like myself and Matthew, I mean, there's any number of excellent, excellent well-seasoned scientists that are saying, here, look at this issue. It actually kind of unravels what you're saying about everything and they just uh they just will not 
excuse me, will not uh, will not countenance us. Will not give it any any attention whatsoever. Like it's it's a real purposeful movement. Like you really you really eventually come to understand that this is not a legitimate debate. This is not legitimate science. They're not interested. They they just have an agenda. And what I find very interesting and worried about now lately is that they all of their solutions to climate change is actually anthropogenic climate change. They want to create anthropogenic climate change in the form of geoengineering. So they're coming up with all these crazy proposals, like they want to create solar sails to block out sunlight now. I mean, can you imagine blocking out the sun? Think of the danger that that represents. They're building these systems that will automatically remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which if ran away, you'd remove too much, especially if you do it biologically with bacteria. They're trying to engineer bacteria that you could just release release nettle. I mean, that could exponentially replicate, remove all the CO2 or way too much. I mean, their their solutions are to engage in mass-scale geoengineering, which could radically transform this planet, radically, right? Way more than a slight change in the weather, which probably isn't even really happening anyway. What do you think of this? Like, why? Like, it really seems like, wow, you actually want to geoengineer the planet in a way that's that's actually really, really dangerous. Yeah, this yeah, is the problem, up, right? Hold, I mean, hold up, hold up. Thought, sure. Matthew. Just, just need to take a short break. This is TNT sure. Radio. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media like Telegram, who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the Type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the Type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the Type 1 community, and we're accountable to the Type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. We don't rock, rock. we talk. talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Uh, welcome back. Uh, during the break, we were talking about the fact that uh, geologists, geology is you know, probably one of the most uh, important uh, disciplines if you want to uh, 
comprehend the true nature of the Earth's climate system. You know, 4.5 billion years the planets existed, and uh, literally 4.5 billion years of climate change we've had. And um, Dr. Matthew Waliki, uh, again, you're an expert in geology. You're an Earth science specialist. You know, you've been from, from the UCLA. You, you've been from the yeah, from University of Alabama. Um, what what do you what's your take on the fact that and um, Joe and I will back you up on this if you want. But we really think geology is the key discipline to understanding the history of Earth's climate. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I say that all climate scientists are Earth scientists first. I mean, that's kind of you know, unless you're an atmospheric physicist and somebody that's really dealing with the physics of the the modern atmosphere. But essentially, if you want to know anything about the earth's climate what we have to do is look in the past and the way we look in the past is through earth science you know that's geochemistry and and using isotopes and proxies and looking at ice cores and trying to parse together the how the climate has changed and when we do that we see that there have been really dramatic shifts in the climate particularly in the northern hemisphere and as joe was talking about before the break i think that when you can claim all of this catastrophism and you can ratchet up the verbiage and you can really freak people out, then crazy ideas like solar radiation management and, and geoengineering to block the sun and things like that, that were really in the in the realm of science fiction, you know, just a few years ago, those become like real ideas now because you've convinced people that you're in such an imminent threat that crazy ideas that we don't know the unforeseen consequences of mm. are on the table now. I mean, some of this enhanced weathering to lock up CO2, um, you know, we're spending, I did a calculation the other day to lock up something like 1% of the anthropogenic emissions would cost $600 billion to do with this enhanced weathering. Um, and that's just assuming it works at 100% efficiency. And right, this is like Bill Gates who pats himself on the back when he goes flies around. He says, but I buy carbon offsets, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's it's ludicrous. The solutions when you've convinced people that there is this threat, these solutions start to sound real. And I would argue that there's a lot more danger in some of these solutions that are proposed than in just mm -hmm. sitting back and enjoying the the warmth and the the human condition, which has never been better. Yeah, let's talk for a moment about the, um, the Holocene optimum. I mean, I, I love to talk about the fact if you go, you know, we're in a, literally in the middle of an interglacial, you know, we're looking at uh, anytime soon heading back into another ice age. Um, nobody really wants to talk about the Holocene optimum and the fact that if you go back a lot far enough, that the, a warmer climate was absolutely beneficial. And that, that reason for the term optimum is because it was better. We see this throughout history. We see this through every species, every family, every genre. Warmth is better. Um, we've seen it through things like the Holocene Optimum, but even the Little Ice Age was devastating to, to societies in Northern Europe and things like that. There's disease and famine because of low crop yields. And we just know for a fact that the, you know these things that the plants and animals, including humans, just do better in warm periods. And what's really strange is that the Holocene optimum has essentially disappeared from the IPCC. And the way the way they get around it is they used a lot of data from the Southern Hemisphere 
And the Southern hemisphere tends to be muted in terms of all of these types of climatic shifts, because if you look at a map, most of the land mass is in fact in the Northern hemisphere. In fact, 90% of the world's population lives in the Northern hemisphere. And because the Southern hemisphere is dominated by oceans, the ocean, because it has its water has a really high thermal heat capacity, it kind of mutes the signals of, of these climatic variations. And so the IPCC, in order to minimize the thermal, the, the Holocene thermal optimum, which again happened at pre-industrial CO2. So remember, this is all happening at low CO2 levels. They used a lot of data from the Southern hemisphere and that essentially mutes the signal. And then they can make the claim that, oh, today is warmer globally than it was in the thermal, in thermal, uh, uh, in, in the Holocene thermal optimum. But Maybe that's true globally. Uh, we can argue if if global temperature is really a metric that's meaningful or not, but it's definitely not true for the Northern Hemisphere. We know that for sure because we can just see as glaciers retreat, beautiful giant trees that are about 6,000 years old are being extruded out of the bottom of the glacier. So I've, I've yet to see a forest glow, growing on a glacier. And so we know 6,000 years ago where there's ice today, there was beautiful forests. And so, mm. you know, this is a really weird trick of trying to convince people that today is somehow different than in the past yeah you as you, uh, sorry Jack, carry on you mentioned anthropogenic co2 emissions uh, uh just earlier there um do you think so that we had an oil crisis it was about 20 years ago an oil price crisis i'm not sure if you remember that i'm in calgary which is an, an oil town it was wonderful for the economy here really good other places really benefited uh, anyway the, the price of oil went to some ridiculous value and there was a real um uh, what do you call it? A slowdown in in just simply in the use of of oil for transportation and for the economy because it just got so expensive. There was a real slowdown in economic activity unless you lived in an oil town. Everyone else suffered. And then, of course, just recently we had the lockdowns due to COVID, and there was a massive reduction in people driving and use of oil. But these two events, you know, especially after the first one happened, I would always point out, you know, that had no effect on this Keeling curve, this this curve which measures the rise in CO2. And then with the lockdowns that happened, there's there's no effect. So CO2 is rising apparently if you go to this Keeling curve, which is measuring the concentration. But whenever we have massive slowdown, slowdowns in our use of fossil so-called fossil fuels and our, our emission of CO2, it has no effect on this curve. So it actually kind of looks like whatever, wherever, whatever the source of CO2 rising is, it's not actually coming from us because when we stop using it, it doesn't affect the rise. What do you think of that, Matthew? Yeah, so this is that's a really good point. So this is something I bring up a lot too. So the carbon cycle is huge and the natural carbon cycle. And so when we talk about anthropogenic emissions, even though we do put out quite a bit because we do use fossil fuels and, and they've been a you know something that has created the the benefits that we we enjoy today both of us sitting you know being able to make this zoom call and everything like that it's all basically uh, available because of fossil fuels but our total emissions in the carbon cycle is only something like three percent and so even if we just shut it off today everybody stopped using fossil fuels we every emission everything we just shut it off today we really aren't going to see anything happen and so this is kind of this double-edged this is great if your argument is I need more money to lower CO2 because CO2 is never going to go down. Well, not in the next century or so. Um, primarily because as a planet warms up, the major reservoir of CO2, which is the deep ocean, that tends to start to outgas as the ocean warms gently. 
the Henry's law, which is a, a law that, that basically states that the amount of gas that is dissolved in a liquid is proportional to the temperature and to the pressure. And so you've probably experienced this. If you open up a soda on a hot day, it'll go flat very quickly as it warms up. So as the ocean warms, it releases CO2. And so COVID was a great example. I mean, COVID really was a huge reduction, enormous reduction in anthropogenic CO2. And there is no visible effect. If you look at the month by month data from the Keeling curve in the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. And so, you know, this, I would argue that this is a failure on all of the climate agreements and everything like that, but they will argue that this is why we need more money and we need to do more and change more policy. And so, you know, I really see this as kind of a, a double-edged sword, but it, it, in all reality, none of us are going to see a drop in in the CO2 level from Mauna Loa Observatory in our lifetime. We may see the increase slow down a little bit, but I can't imagine we're going to see a reversal in that number. Now, you yeah, mentioned... Can I just jump in for a moment and just get some context to this Mauna Loa um, number? And then the numbers, I, I think, again help misdirect the, the the uninformed public because the Manaloa effectively is an active volcano. Why would you locate a measuring station uh, at an area that is known to have a, a regular high level of CO2 emission? Um, again, another thing to point out is another misdirection is the idea of fossil fuels. I mean, fossil fuels is again a, a debated theory, very contentious. A lot of people argue that abiogenic theory is as credible, if not more credible. A good example is the peak oil narrative. The peak oil narrative, I grew up with that. I remember as a child being told that uh, so-called fossil fuels would run out by the 1980s and 90s. You know, again, scare stories, uh, misdirection, half-baked theories. We don't really know, do we, Matthew? Well, so I would argue that, so it's true that abiotic oil production is true. It's called the Haber, it's called the uh, Fischer-Trope reactions. And so this is basically how you know you have hydrocarbons on things like the moons of Saturn, Titan, and things like that. And so we definitely do know that those processes occur, and I'm sure they are occurring on Earth as well. But I would argue that most of the evidence, at least the geologic evidence that we have, would suggest that the current hydrocarbon reservoirs that we use are remnants of past life. That doesn't mean that peak oil is real because King Hubert, it, when he made his peak oil predictions back in the 50s, he didn't account for technological advance. And things like hydrologic fracturing has allowed us to access reservoirs that King Huber never thought we would be able to. And so as we talk about peak oil, one thing that peak oil just never can, can predict is what will be the next technological advance. And so I would argue that I, I would still say that fossil fuels are finite. Um, I hope that the hate that the Fisher Trophy reaction is happening more, but I would say that the geologic evidence does suggest that these things are right now mostly biotic. But I really do hope we find more abiotic reservoirs. I'm sure that you know the fossil fuel industry hopes we find more abiotic reservoirs because that would allow us to drill in more places and access uh, fossil fuels in more places. But from the geologic evidence, it tends to be associated with places that we really think there was a lot of life, a lot of buggers in shallow seas, particularly for oil and gas. Coal, we pretty much know because we can see the remnants of the of the plant matter in the coal deposits. So we're pretty confident that that's, that's just squashed uh, plant material, essentially. That's what a, a coal deposit is. But for oil and gas, it seems like they're probably, a, they're probably biotic. And you know, I, I do hope that the the abiotic theory is is found to be more prevalent. And that doesn't mean it's not true. It just doesn't seem that 
where you can get high enough concentrations of carbon in the mantle, for example, just in the natural rock or in the core. Some people would argue that there's quite a bit of carbon in the core. It's hard to get the concentrations that you need to produce the fossil fuels. One easy way to concentrate carbon is through, you know, organisms, through biotic organisms. So, um, you know, but, 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 but you're right that a lot of this is used to prop up a narrative that is either this stuff is going to run out any day. So we're just going to have to switch anyway. And we should be switching anyway, because look, this is what's changing the weather, right? So they're kind of attacking it from both aspects, but peak oil is definitely not true because it just doesn't, there's nobody that has a crystal ball that can predict how technological advancements like hydrologic fracturing, which opened up so much reservoir rock that we never had access to before, nobody can predict those advancements. Yeah, I'd also like to add that uh, it's very convenient that one of the biggest proponents of pushing the idea of fossil fuels was the Rockefeller family. And again, if you are part of the industry, you want to make sure that your product is is rare. You know, the rarer it is, is the more valuable it is. So again, uh, it certainly fits that narrative. Uh, another thing I want to point out is the idea that um, we're led down pathways about certain metrics, the idea of global boiling. And again, if we look at, you know, just stand back a moment and just think about the last 120 years or so, we're looking at perhaps a temperature increase of no more than just over a degree. And the sea level rises, again, two millimeters a year. These are not catastrophic changes, are they? No, and this is a problem too. Is it, we, we, we talk about these metrics as these global metrics, but really sea level change depends on where you are, right? If you're in Oslo, the sea level has been dropping by something like three millimeters a year because the, the land surface is still rebounding. And so, you know, I think this is another one of these scare tactics. We talk about these global metrics, you know, one degree of warming globally. Well, well, what's that really mean? If you're in a city that's grown really rapidly, you've probably warmed by more than that. If you're in a rural area that hasn't really grown, you probably haven't seen much warming at all, right? And so we kind of dumb down a really complex system like climate into just single metrics, like one degree of warming or 420 parts per million of CO2. But that's not real. I, you know, there's so much variability and so much variation that, you know, I, I, I have a real problem with these, these kind of big metrics that, that aim to reduce a really complex system into a single num number and single metric. Yeah. yeah. Matthew, another question. Sorry, Joe, carry on. You mentioned that, uh, so the, the increase in CO2 that's happening in the atmosphere is likely from ocean warming, right? From deep ocean warming. Uh, that yeah. Seems that's to be the main, the only... that's the, by far the largest reservoir. Yeah, that seems to be the only possible source because, like you said, there, there's no real signature of the of, of the human emission uh, on that increase in curve. Um, so the question is: Is it physically possible that humans are responsible for the warming of the ocean, given the ocean's thermal capacity? Like, is there even any physical possibility that we could be warming the ocean? Yeah, this is a really. Or, or are you talking about astrophysical effects that have to be responsible for something at that scale? Yeah, I would argue that it has to be astrophysical or geothermal. So either more heat is entering the system underneath, right? And that's going to be through all the mid-ocean ridges. We don't really think about volcanism in the ocean, but the primary spot where new crust is being extruded onto the surface of the planet is in the oceans. That's where the majority of the crust is being formed. And these are at these mid-ocean ridges. And so 
And remember, the oceans are just not explored. We just don't understand much, particularly about the deep ocean. We have things like the Argus Argos system, buoy system, where these buoys are going up and down. But you know, we only have a few thousand of them, something like 4,000. So we just really don't understand the thermal structure, the currents, any of that of the of the oceans, particularly the deep oceans, but also astrophysical, right? Because primarily where the oceans are warming is through absorbing solar radiation. But it's very difficult to imagine an atmosphere that has such a low thermal capacity heating something so large as the oceans that has such a huge thermal capacity, mm-hmm. right? It'd be like lighting a match next to a campfire and saying that your match is warming the campfire. Mm-hmm. So it's this is it's this is a real this gets into a lot of astrophysics and and, and, and atmospheric physics and um, but to me it's it I would I would argue that there's just a lot easier. Occam's razor would suggest that it's a lot easier to warm the the oceans (laughs) through something like basal heating, through geothermal activity, or through more absorbed solar radiation. That could be because of diminishing clouds, for example, over the oceans, and they absorb more solar radiation. But the idea that the atmosphere warming by a degree Celsius is going to somehow heat up the oceans when their thermal capacity is so enormous um, maybe, but we'll probably have to wait like a million, maybe hundreds of millions of years, um, you know, yeah, that, before we that, see that. That is not an effect that, that could even happen on the short term. Yeah, like you said, if, if that was even possible, it would take millions of years for that transfer to actually happen. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's, you know, it, I, I tell people, it's like, if you if you have a blanket on a window and it's blocking out all the light, if you put up another little blanket, it doesn't really do anything. And so, you know, just because there's a a, a greenhouse effect, you have to understand the thermal capacities of the systems that you're talking about. And so, yeah, I would say millions of years before we'd even see an effect. Thank you. We're talking, talking to Dr. Matthew Aliki on TNT radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I think we have a big problem globally with the perception that people have, especially with people who I think are quite intelligent, they're well-off, they're well-meaning, and yet they have bought into the whole man-made climate change scam. I was at a holiday party last night, and a lady that was there had a Tesla, and I have nothing against Tesla. So I was asking her, well, how long does it take you to charge a Tesla? She says, five hours. That's in her garage. And I said, well, what if you're traveling cross country? She says, I'll look up rapid charging station. I said, okay, okay. And how long does that take? A half hour. So let me get this straight. You have to plan your trip so that you will stop for a half hour at charging stations. You have to go look along the route. I mean, I travel across the United States all the time. It takes me three minutes to fill my tank for 400 miles, not a half hour to recharge it. And what's interesting is it's tough enough to figure out which hotel to stay in as opposed to trying to find a charging station. But if you have a lot of money, that's fine. But things got sort of sticky at the end of the party to a point where my wife actually grabbed me and said, come on, let's go. When the lady said to me, well, I'm doing my part to stop CO2 from warming the atmosphere. Again, what bothers me is that she's very intelligent. I've had this encounter with a lot of intelligent people that 
they have actually been brainwashed. So we got a whole lot of work to do to try to at least get people to understand what's going on and to look at it. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. One in four Australian women experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Staying is dangerous, but leaving can mean homelessness for them and their children. With your generosity, the Salvos can provide crisis services and ongoing support, helping women find a way out of violence and a way back into a safe and stable life. Help us leave no one in need. Please donate to the Red Shield Appeal today. Using science to debunk myths from the pandemic to climate fraud. Thanks for listening to Sky Dragon Slaying on TNT Radio. Yeah, during the break, uh, Joe, Matthew, and I we were just discussing uh, the idea that uh, Matthew, your your parents are you know, from Poland. You, you you grew up with that idea of authoritarianism. You kind of have a great idea for free speech and advocating open and scientific debate. Uh, yeah, Joe Posma, you, you know, you, you both, you've worked in academia, you guys, you've seen how the whole thing has become tyrannical. Yeah, Matthew, just give us some, where you're, where you're coming from on this idea of open scientific debate. Yeah, so I think, I, I, I think part of it was being born in Poland. So I, I, I we immigrated when I was very young, but I, I just would get a lot of the stories from my parents. And I, I it was something that really made my radar very sensitive to all of this kind of group think, lack of any sort of discussion, this kind of attitude to push people out that don't agree with you very quickly. Um, you know, no healthy scientific debate. And I, I think it was the support of my parents probably really that when I would bring that up to my father, who, like we mentioned, was a lifelong academic, um, we would have these discussions. Um, I, I had kids at that time when I started my academic career. So that changed my perspective too. And I had the support of my family. So I, I, you know, to make that decision to kind of step out of this whole bubble and, or to see if, if me pushing back would essentially pop the bubble, which I, it was clear that it would have, was that worth it? Right. And so self-preservation is a huge instinct. And I, I realized why academics stick it out and, and, you know, that's kind of the, the career we picked, but I was fortunate enough that I had the support of my family. We had made some good investments and things like that. So I, I it was an opportunity to maybe make a career path a change. I think there's a whole new thirst for scientific knowledge nowadays. So mm. maybe independent mind, independent thinkers back in the day were kind of pigeonholed and stuck in academia, but, you know, avenues like this and having discussions like we are today mm has really opened up a lot of new avenues that I don't think were available for academics not that long ago. So that made the 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 idea that maybe, you know, stepping out of this and speaking up and maybe really kind of torpedoing a career that I've been working on for decades, it, it wasn't just going to end my scientific career. I could still talk about science. I could still be informing the public about science, but I was no longer bound by these chains that you know, by the act funding institutions, by peer review, by being, by having to, to, to deal with editors and follow a narrative. And so, you know, it, it kind of freed me up a little bit, but it, it's, it's, you know, my anxiety is definitely high in the last year walking away from this academic career, but um, I'm excited for new opportunities like this. 
Yeah, this is very important. And, and while we're on that topic, Matthew, let's give a shout out to your projects. I mean, you've obviously got a Substack, you've got um, your own web- website. Uh, j- just give us, uh, where can we find you? Where, where do we go to find your work? So I talk a lot on Twitter I, uh, on at Matthew Wyleke. I just pretty much post most of my links to articles I write. So I, I do have a Substack, Irrational Fear, that you can find that at irrationalfear.com. Um, I've been doing some filming. We have some some exciting things coming up that I can't really talk about too much yet, but I'll be posting those onto things like Twitter and discussing them on my Substack. Um, I've been doing a, a lecture series on YouTube that's free for everyone. That's just I'm teaching a basic earth science course from uh, just a college level earth science course. So there's something like 20 lectures that will be up. There's something like nine or 10 available right now. And those are just free to watch on YouTube. You can find those again at Matthew Wyleke. So there's just a lot of new avenues of ways that people can talk about science, which is really exciting. So. Yeah, we're very keen on this because um, Joe and I, we've been working at Principia Scientific. We started it 13, nearly 14 years ago. And we, back then we saw that the problem was really, in the peer-reviewed journal system that we couldn't get papers published if they went outside the mainstream narrative and uh we started our own publishing hub you know website that we could actually bring together an international body of scientists who could share ideas you know work with each other collaborate help each other peer review help each other edit their work and, and refine ideas and as you say this is the new way forward i, I believe academia is effectively in crisis um I'm sure you could relate to it in your country, certainly over here in the UK, where about 50% of your average 18-year-olds are going to go to university. And as we know, 50% of the population is below average intelligence. So again, what is the real value of this academic system that uh, by and large is is a money-making scheme, a Ponzi scheme, you know, for for the universities? Uh, Do you you think that, um, you know, we are in a paradigm shift that, as, as you say, we may have to have new institutions? Well, you know, I, I think that new institutions are going to be healthy competition for these for the existing academic institutions. So things like University of Austin uh, is a new kind of independent uh, type of university that really kind of heterodox in in, the, in its thinking and doesn't really abide by these ideological stances. But I think if they start to lose good faculty, I think Joe hit it, uh, mentioned it before, if the costs keep rising, primarily because administrative costs keep rising. Mm-hmm. So he was talking about these DEI administrators first grants. And I, I, I see that all the time. I mean, in at the University of Alabama, there was huge amounts of hiring on the administrative side. These administrators were making more than the assistant professors, but they had no revenue stream for the university. They they don't they don't bring in grants. So when I bring in a grant, the university would take half of the money to keep the lights on and run my instruments and things like that. And then I would teach 300 or 400 students that were paying a pretty healthy amount per credit. So I was, you know, there's quite a bit of revenue stream that a faculty member is bringing in, but we've bloated the administrative side so much, the growth that we see, there's been almost no change in faculty to student ratio, even though the, fa- the students keep growing. We've been adding some faculty as they go, but we've seen this enormous bloat mm-hmm. in administrators, something like one-to-one in places like Stanford, where there's literally one administrator per one student. And then mm-hmm. we wonder why the costs of universities are going through the roof. And so mm-hmm. these people are going, paying a ton of money. They're 
essentially going to one of these places where they're being micromanaged by all these administrators, what you can say, what you can't say, what, you know, where, where you can go to, to do this, where you have to go to do this, safe spaces, you name it, you know, don't, you can't say this to this person. You can't say that to this person. There's almost this kind of police state that they, that they develop where, where students are almost encouraged to tell on each other. There's all these administrators and all of this, this infrastructure that, oh, they love that, harassment. That's what the DEI oh, yeah. people exist for. They love harassment. They're like any opportunity that someone can claim victim status and claim her. They just love that. They love it, harassment. It's remarkable. It really does create this culture of like tell on each other and and well, your student. Totally, you know, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it, it's totally destroyed. The whole academic system is totally destroyed. We do need a new system. We've interviewed so many excellent wonderful people and it's been a dream of mine for a long time now 10 15 years at least we've talked to other people who also you know are trying to to work in this regard we need some sort of new institution you mentioned the what was it the university of houston i think you said no, austin. Um, austin. Austin. austin right right there must be a huge there must be a huge untapped market out there market demand by parents who want to be able to send their children to someplace that's sane and not insane mm -hmm. someplace that's not going to be all about like even in physics now at the university physics became all about telling students that boys can be girls there must be a huge demand out there for parents to be able to send their children to a normal, rational school where you learn actual real things. We got to figure think, out I how to tap is. into that and make a ton of money off it. Not not, not <laughs> for making a ton of, I mean, we can, but for the purpose of expanding rational reason and truth in the yeah. world again. I agree hundred percent. And I think you're seeing it. I think you're seeing parents. I had so many emails that were coming to me when I was starting to speak out about things that, you know, how bad is it? I'm, I'm considering maybe sending my, my kid to vocational training instead. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, they're not, I'm not going to send them to a university. And my, my biggest issue is there's so much of the social side that the students are going to lose. You know, I college to me was so much more about hanging out and having fun and being on my own for the first time. And I was surfing and chasing girls half the time, right? That was, it was a social experience or I was getting knowledge. I didn't really think about it, but I was really growing up kind of socially. I was learning how to interact with people and, you know, from different backgrounds and things like that. So I think there's a real benefit to that, but if parents don't see that their students are getting, or their kids are getting an educational you know, they're being indoctrinated, not taught how to think, but taught what to think. They're really going to second guess paying these tons of money to these institutions if that's what's going to be happening. And then, you know, I, 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 if if you start to see a rise of these independent institutions, maybe that's going to be the real straw that breaks the camel's back because they're going to ultimately see they're going to be losing students. And if they're losing students, they're losing money. And like you said, ultimately it comes down to money. And if they start to get hit in the pocketbook, maybe we're going to start to see things change. Yeah, I like yeah, to I make the point, just make the point that during the lockdown, one of the benefits of lockdown was the idea that uh, schools and universities were shut down, people work from home more, and they began to realise that you can do quite a bit yourself. Self-directed learning, I think, is a real big growth area. The idea that parents have more control over what they their children do, have more supervision, you know, you can look over your child's shoulders, and it's more engaging to do something as a family. And I, and I think Joe Joe Persman, you and I agree on that. We've uh, had many advocates for homeschooling on the show, and, and have said you literally can do the curriculum in two hours a day. You don't need seven eight hours a day to do what a normal child would do in, in an institution. You know, for a very long week. And there's so much benefit for, for being in the family. I take your point, uh, Matthew, about the idea of socialization. 
Um, but I think uh, good parenting, you do that within the community anyway. You'd network and hopefully, uh, you know, using the internet, the power of the internet in your local community, if there are more people willing to homeschool, perhaps bring together half a dozen children, maybe a dozen or so, uh, and do it that way. And, and I think there's a will there, definitely a will. And uh, again, people like our good selves are willing to support that. We're enthusiastic about uh, yeah, self-directed learning, independent, rational thought, critical reasoning skills, Joe Postman. We argued before that uh, something like 13% of the population, Matthew, have critical reasoning skills. Most people, 50% of the population, are the true sheep. They they do as they're told. They don't like to rock the boat. They like to conform. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's what I argued all the time is let's not talk, teach people how to think. Let uh, what to think. Let's teach them how to think. Let's show them all these ideas. I always told people, I'm not here to convince you. I'll give you what I think, and I'll tell you the evidence that supports it. But go out there and look at it. Challenge me. Or disagree with me. Let's let's have a discussion. You know, we have to kind of be honest. You know, it, it, at least in the United States, we really took K through 12 for granted for a long time. It was essentially babysitting, right? I mean, we had dual family, we had dual working parents and they needed someone to somewhere to park their kids, right? I mean, that's kind of how I grew up. Nobody really cared about what we were learning. We just needed somewhere to park us from eight to three before mom got home. And so, you know, now where I think, like you mentioned, parents are starting to get more involved. And I think that's a great thing. I, you know, the fact that we're starting to go, hey, wait a minute, like, what are we actually teaching our kids? And maybe this isn't just going to be a babysitting place. I want them to learn certain things. And these are the things that I prioritize in terms of learning. And then, you know, we can talk about the others. So, you know, I, I think it's a healthy thing that there's this new kind of invigorated public and parents that want to know what their children are learning and are more interested now and want to be more engaged. I think that like only good things can come from that. Yeah, very much with you on that, Joe. Joe Postman. You again. You got a young daughter. You know, you're you're in the, you're in that system yourself. You, what what your thoughts? Can you add to that? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people are homeschooling for basic safety because they want to keep their children's minds safe from this insane uh, social justice system that is infiltrated. And in the interim, before we have a new, you know, education system like we're dreaming about uh, creating a real education system, yeah, parents have to keep their children safe, and that means. Uh, uh, homeschooling for now is 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 the best option uh, if you can if you can do it and yeah it really is a, a wonderful way to go we don't have much time left but one topic we we're going to bring up was uh, the greenhouse effect that's how I got into uh, climate skepticism actually were you always a climate skeptic or were, was there a point where you were you know basically um, you know going along with the narrative and then you realized wait a minute I got to look into this or were you always a, a skeptic how did that work out for you I was always definitely, I realized that the science was being politicized very quickly, but I also realized as a young academic that I shouldn't be rocking the boat. The self-preservation instinct was pretty big. Like, you know, put your head down because saying anything, you could just see the writing on the wall that this was a very hyper-politicized subject. So I was always questioning it, but I was kind of keeping my mouth shut. Yeah. I think yeah, skepticism so the of everything is good, though. I mean, I mean we, we've talked, obviously, we, the focus today has been on, on the climate issue with, with the uh, recent COP28 COP climate conference. But I think it, it goes across the whole gamut, doesn't it? Government, big government, the, the idea that, uh, as you said, administrators, they're, they're, they breathe, they, they kind of self-breathe. And it's like wherever you go, if you, if you get any institution, be it government, universities, you name it big pharma, the, uh, hospitals, they, they want to enlarge themselves. So I think it does up go to the point whether you believe in the idea of small government or big government. 
But um, yeah, Matthew, climate, climate is the ultimate tool, right? I mean, it is definitely the one thing that the government can prod and prick and pick at you with everything, what you eat, who you see, where you travel, um, you know, what kind of energy you use, what kind of car you drive. It's the best tool if you really want to control people's lives. It's, you know, that's, and that worries me. They can, because they can make anything about climate change in Canada, you know, for years now, we've had a minister of climate change. It was just a totally ridiculous position, but uh, yeah, we have a climate over the world with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's well, right. Yeah, in the US, yeah. Matthew, it's been such a pleasure having you on Sky Dragon Slaying. Uh, Dr. Matthew Waliki, you're an expert in, in earth sciences. You, it's a delight to talk to you about the nonsense about COP28. The, we put it uh, to put that one to bed and we hope that maybe more, pe more people now will rest assured that climate is not about to change drastically. Matthew, pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us on Sky Dragon Slaying. This is TNT Radio. <laughs>